Well, as soon as I opened my mouth, you could tell straight away, friend, I was hewn out of a rock of coal in the South Wales coal mining valleys, where most of my family were miners or boxers or both. Uh, so they were either knocked out by the coal or in the boxing ring. Fortunately, I've never had that experience uh, myself. I'm delighted to be with you. I was supposed to be here a couple of years ago when it was your 150th anniversary. I think it's only about 152 now. Uh, if I was coming a couple of years ago, I would have spoken on the subject that was advertised in your news bulletin, How Churches Grow. But I thought it would be more appropriate this morning if I could speak on uh, a subject which I think could be relevant to us in our current situation. So with the blessing of uh, some of your elders, uh, I'm going to speak from Psalm 73 on the, the theme of faith on trial. Um, I won't read this passage to start with because I'm going to take you through it and explain it as we go along. Save time because I understand from talking with someone in the men's washroom that uh, he said I could speak as long as I felt led by the, the Spirit, which is always a dangerous thing for a Welshman. Uh, but I realize there's a student lunch at 12.30, so I've got to finish before then, because that would evoke a crisis, no doubt. Um, the reason I want to speak from this psalm is several fold. One is, is it's a personal testimony. I'm sure many people here love reading autobiographies or biographies, and this psalm in one psalm is the autobiography uh, of a man called Asaph, and usually there are not many psalms by Asaph, in the book of Psalms, the majority would be by uh, David. Um, but this psalm focuses on an issue or a question which he grappled with apparently all through his life. We'll come to that uh, in a moment. Second reason I want to speak from this psalm, though, is because uh, we're living in troubled times, as we just heard uh, in the prayer. Many people are struggling with the cost of living. Uh, we've been hit by, hit by the triple whammy of the cost of living, the war in Ukraine, the threat of uh, even nuclear intervention, and COVID over the last few years. So it's difficult times. It's not unusual, of course, in the history of uh, mankind. I'm thinking back as a historian to uh, the statements of some others uh, in history. Um, uh, in the 16th century, there was Thomas Hobbes, a great English political theorist, who said, life is nasty, brutish, and short, when the average duration of life was about 45 to 50 years uh, in those days. Or the Chilean uh, poet Pablo Neruda, who is uh, famous for his love poetry. In fact, he was so famous, an Oscar-winning Italian film was uh, produced called Il Postino, the postman, uh, about this postman who captures the heart of a girl in a little village on uh, an island off the coast of Italy. But near the end of his life, Pablo Neruda uh, wrote st a striking phrase in his diaries. He said, sometimes I just get tired of living. And I imagine that there are some people who may feel that uh, here. Or there was the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, the, the, who, who penned War and Peace, who uh, just over a hundred years ago said, anyone who wants to, an easy life has been born in the wrong generation. Now, we could apply any of those three statements to our contemporary culture, but I'm sure some are struggling with the challenges that we face uh, today. That leads me on to the key third reason why I want to look at this passage, 
is because you're beginning a series on doubt this evening, and this passage uh, deals with a key reason for doubt, which was a lifelong problem in the, the life of Asaph, because he was grappling with an existential question. By, when I use the word existential, I mean a felt question, a deeply felt question. It wasn't, it was partly intellectual, but it was something which touched the heart and the senses. And the issue that he grappled with was a combination of the question, uh, why do the wicked seem to have such a contented life and free of difficulties? As he looked around him, he saw many who were wealthy and wicked, and they got away literally with murder, some of them. And alongside that is the question, was the question that he grappled with, which, which was, why do bad things happen to good people, and where is God in the midst of all of this? And he starts off the psalm by highlighting this question. He's obviously writing the psalm at the end of his life. So he's writing the conclusion to his autobiography at the end of his life when he starts off by saying he's come to this conclusion, truly God is good to Israel. That's his settled conclusion at the end of life. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he switches and says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Why? My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on from there. Now, some years ago, there was a a best-selling book. It was the top of the New York bestsellers. I saw it in many airports uh, I flew into and uh, out of. It was uh, a book written by a, a liberal Jewish rabbi called Rabbi Kushner, and it, it was entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It sold millions, because obviously many people felt this was a question they grappled with. As they looked around and they thought of their own struggles and troubles, they looked at others' lives where they seem to be free of these uh, difficulties. Rabbi Kushner, as a liberal thinker, came to the conclusion that there is a God, and he's a compassionate God, but he concluded that bad things happen to good people because God is weak. That was his conclusion. And many people bought it, this kind of liberal line. And it may be that Asaph was struggling with this too, he goes on to state the problem, uh, his existential and his intellectual problem, in the following first half of the psalm. And I'll read it to you because it highlights. Uh, you, may, you may feel some of it yourself as you look around society in Northern Ireland. I was envious of the arrogant in verse 3 when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You might even think of some political leaders as you think of this too. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Hints of Yuri Gagarin there who uh, Famously, when the first man in space, when he was um, traveling around the earth, said, well, I've been up here for 24 hours and I haven't seen any evidence of God, so clearly he doesn't exist. Just dismissed it all in one go. Or Stephen Fry, 
who I saw on Irish television not, not too long ago, uh, challenging the existence of God because of suffering in the world. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretched through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it just seemed too wearisome to me. So that's where Pablo Neruda's poetry comes in. Sometimes I just get tired of living. It doesn't seem to be any easy answer to the problem of adversity and difficulties in my life. And it's exacerbated by looking at others who seem to uh, just slip through life without any difficulty. So that's the problem stated for Asaf. Now, there was a great Christian thinker some years ago called Francis Schaeffer who said, the Bible doesn't give exhaustive answers to our big questions, but it gives sufficient in order to believe. And he went on to say, um, not only does it give sufficient in order to believe, but it gives the best answers to our questions. That's why it's important to face head on the challenge of doubt, which he was experiencing uh, in this psalm. What is interesting about Scripture, as we read this passage, is what it highlights to us is that the Bible never shrinks away from the big questions which human beings answer, and God does give satisfactory answers to those big questions in the text of Scripture. Most problems in our questioning in the Christian life occur because of a deficient understanding of the character of God. So it's interesting that as Asaph receives an answer to the problem or the question which he's grappling with, the answer is revealed in a fresh understanding of the character and the person of God. And he observes four things about God, that he is a just judge. Secondly, that he's a God who is um, personally with us, the presence of God. Thirdly, that he's a God who providentially cares for his children through his grace. And fourthly, a God who gives us hope both in this life and beyond death. Well, let's briefly comment on each of those four. So he's reached halfway through the psalm. He's troubled by this question. It's really to him. And then you see the switch. Often this happens with big questions in Scripture. The problem is stated, and then God gives the answer. Here comes the answer. In the, anybody here who's struggling with this question, this is what God says in answer to the question, why does, why does sometimes the wicked seem to prosper and sometimes believers struggle with the weight of problems in life? It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discovered their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Interesting phrase. What he refers to there is that humankind, including the wicked, are like phantoms in terms of their existence. You know elsewhere in Scripture talks about man's life is as grass. 
And Shakespeare noticeably tried to pick this up in his famous tragedy, Macbeth, when he talks about men strutting and fretting their hour upon the stage, and then they are heard no more. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Life is but a shadow. Shakespeare has clearly read this passage in Scripture, and he understands the transience of life, even for the great individuals, the powerful individuals, even for great nations. When I was studying in university, I studied under a great historian of sorts, uh, of civilization, called Arnold Toynbee, and he took 16 years to write his famous histories of civilizations. 21 civilizations, he said, were great in the history of the world. But many of them we never speak of these days. The Hittites, whoever speaks of them. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, and there are many others who were great, or the people in Dahomey or Benin in West Africa. Films just been made about them, about a famous group of female warriors. These were great civilizations. They're gone. They're gone. God raises them up and God brings them down. Now, Vladimir Putin is trying to resurrect the old Soviet Union. It was a great, almost impregnable power for many years. Who would have thought it would come low? Then suddenly the Berlin Wall falls and it's gone. So what he's hinting at here when he speaks about mankind, even the great nations or empires falling, is that God is sovereign over history and he will judge even the great nations and the most powerful men and women in due course. And the reason he doesn't intervene and judge them earlier is because he's gracious and he gives even the wicked an opportunity to repent of the fact that they rejected him and set him aside. Now that's a constant theme all through the Old Testament prophets. You read the minor and the major prophets in the Old Testament and you see many references to the great and the terrible day of the Lord. And consistently the prophets are saying, just you wait. The day is coming when all will be revealed, when God will judge. And David himself in the Psalms refers to the fact an astonishing phrase he says rejoice for the Lord your God will judge with equity now you were a great lawyer speaking here last week but sometimes when you look at the law the exercise or the application of the law in the United Kingdom sometimes the law seems like an ass because sometimes people seem to even some who are wealthy get a fancy barrister and get off with get get away with their case we've seen it in Wales recently where Somebody contributed to the death of some small children through bad practices in the workplace and the provision of food in their school. And uh, the, the butcher who was involved got a very expensive lawyer from London and he was just in prison in the end for 18 months. And the parents came uh, on television originally, said, we'll have our day in court. And then when, ju when the judgment was executed, they came on again and they said, we don't understand justice here because he'll be home with his family at Christmas, we will never see our son again. So sometimes you look at human justice and judgment, and while we have the rule of law in the UK, we have to acknowledge that sometimes humanly constructed laws also fail because of occasional corruption. But what the Bible teaches us is that the law of God and the judgment and the justice of God are absolutely trustworthy 
That's why we can rejoice, because ultimately, God will set it right. Just you wait. The judgment is coming, and we can trust Him. And that's why when Jesus and others talk about the judgment of God, they say three things about it. They say it's certain, they say it will be clear, and it will be public. I mean, Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, made some frightening statements about judgment, saying even the things which people have done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. And the only means of escaping the judgment and experiencing mercy is by believing in the substitutionary death, the death of Christ on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve, followed by his resurrection, which brings hope. So the first thing that Asaph strangely is helped to give perspective to this question is, don't worry, God is a just judge and he will judge the envious, the arrogant, and humankind uh, in due course. It's a strange first answer in a way, and it's not totally satisfactory, because he goes on in the next verse and says, even though um, they are swept away, and you, God despises them as, as phantoms, he says in verse, verse 21, my soul was embittered when I was pricked in the heart, and I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. We can identify with that because sometimes when we are unhappy with something or we are embittered by something, we thrash around because we, 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 we're angry and we're frustrated. Even the most malleable and even tempered of people, if they feel an injustice has been done or they're struggling with adversity, can just thrash out because there doesn't seem to be an answer. This is what happened to Asaf here. He's thrashing out, he's embittered. He's brutish and ignorant, like a beast before God. So God reveals a second thing about himself, which is opening his eyes even further when he says in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And he returns to this theme of the presence of God in the very last verse when he says, but for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. The second thing God reveals about himself is not just that he's a just judge, because Muslims can say that, but that he's a God who draws near. It would be heresy if you said to a Muslim that God is near to you, or you can experience his presence. Because in Islam, God is distant and far off. They have 99 names for God, but there are four things only the Bible reveals about the character of God as being distinctive. God is revealed in scripture as loving, personal, a, a, um, a father God and the God of all grace. You won't find any of those four things in the Quran or any other religious uh, literature. And part of this dimension to the grace of God is that God draws near to his people. And there's this astonishing phrase for anybody who's experiencing adversity or suffering this morning. If you read in Isaiah, which was the, the prophet that was quoted to us in the communion service beforehand, there's this astonishing phrase where God says, the Israelites, even though they will be judged, he says, but in your affliction, I will be afflicted. In other words, I'm, with, I'm in it with you. You're not alone. And in John chapter 11, famously where Jesus is told about Lazarus's death and he weeps, it says he was deeply troubled and the Greek word for deeply troubled there is only used three times in the New Testament. It's exactly the same word used when a horse does this. And you know when a horse does that, you better, you better uh, hide away. 
because it's going to charge you or kick you. In other words, Jesus was deeply distressed by the death of Lazarus. He didn't just say, well, it's okay, he's going to be resurrected again, which sometimes you hear in Christian funerals, as if grief is inconsequential. No, Jesus was deeply troubled because of the suffering and the loss uh, induced by the loss of Lazarus. Lazarus. In other words, he was present in the situation. Now, there are some great stories of God's presence with his people throughout time in difficulties. I remember last night I went to the 60th anniversary of uh, Operation Mobilization, with which I served for a year. And I remember one of the guys working with Operation Mobilization was somebody called Peter Conlon. He obviously had an Irish background. He was a, a writer, a reporter, a communications person. And he went up to China on one occasion. He interviewed a very great evangelist from the 1950s who did write books. Watchman Nee was often known to many Christians. But uh, this man's uh, name was uh, Wan Min Dao. He was a great preacher, especially in the student world, when revival broke out in the 1950s. Uh, when the Chinese government, the communist government, came in, into power, uh, he was imprisoned. He spent 30 years in prison, several in different sections in solitary confinement. Peter Conlon went in and interviewed him when he was released from prison when he was about 85 years of age. I have the interview on tape recorded. And he, Peter said to him, Wang Ming Dao, you were in prison at the peak of your powers at 55 years of age. You're now 85 years of age. All the years in prison have taken your voice away. He never preached again. His voice was so weak. And he said, you even spent time in solitary confinement. As you look back on your time in prison, do you feel any bitterness towards God because you were taken out in your mid-50s? And he said, uh, I'll never forget the words, he said, no, I don't feel bitter towards God. For me, my time in prison was a honeymoon with Jesus. Now, if I said that, it might sound glib, glib but I'm not the man who spent 30 years in prison. Or I think of Richard Wobrandt, the great Romanian Baptist preacher from a Jewish background, who spent several years in solitary confinement in the communist system, and to maintain his sanity, he was somebody who memorized Bible verses, he prepared 365 sermons, one for each day of the year, and he preached them to himself in the prison cell. And when he was released from prison, he published them in a book called Sermons in Solitary Confinement. I've got a copy of them. It's a brilliant intellectual, by the way. I heard him preach on the theme of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life in Oxford. Three sermons, they were fantastic in the town hall. In one of his sermons, he speaks about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is present with his people, whatever the situation is, however dark and difficult our circumstances are. And he said in this sermon on the presence of God in all circumstances, he said, sometimes I was in prison, apparently on my own. I didn't know whether it was daytime or nighttime because there was not, not much light. But I danced for joy as I experienced the, the presence of God by His Spirit with me in the prison cell. Touched by the presence of God. Or recently we had a leader from the church in Ukraine staying with us in July who told us that, you remember the, the massacre in a place called Musha, just outside Kiev, uh, I think it was in April. A lot of people were killed, there were mass graves. And there was one story uh, which circulated amongst the believers. One woman had lost her husband, he'd been killed, and she decided to flee Busha during the night. 
uh, called, uh, uh, by traversing what was called Death Valley because often people were killed by snipers as they traversed it. So she walked this valley at night trying to cross the line to safety and as dawn uh, arose she managed to come out of the valley with her two children and as she was greeted by Ukrainian soldiers one of them said to her where's the man who was with you walking through the valley she said well that must have been Jesus because I asked him to be present with me and I just sang songs about his presence all the way through the valley that explains why I was protected. That was just in April of this year. Now, I don't know what your circumstances are and what kind of valley you're in, but I do know that the scriptures in Psalm 139, which is David's great psalm about the omnipresence of God, he says, not even the thickest of darknesses can hide you from me. There's no escape from the presence of God, either in judgment, because he's the hound of heaven who will chase us, or in difficulties because he promises to be with us afflicted in the midst of our affliction and available to comfort us the thing is of course the bible says you god says you draw near to me and i will draw near to you sometimes christians don't feel god's presence because they keep their distance because they feel wounded or hurt rather than drawing close to god engaging with his word and with his people and asking God to make his presence known even to a fragile believer in a difficult situation. I love the verse in 1 Psalm chapter 1 Samuel 2 verse 22 which says this, the Lord will not abandon his people for his own honors at stake. In other words, you can almost bet that God will not abandon you in difficulties because his own honor, his name is at stake because of his covenant, his promised love to his children. So it's God's promise which he will keep in terms of presence in himself with his children. Or Psalm 84 verse 6 says he can, te- he can turn a well or a night of weeping into a well of joy. And that's why we are commissioned to cast our problems on him and draw on his presence and his help. The third thing that uh, he says about, or he discovers about the character of God is not just that he's a just judge or that he is present with his children, but thirdly, that he providentially cares for us like a father. At the end of verse 23 and the beginning of 12, verse 24, we have these phrases, not only is God continually with us, but you hold me by my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. I love this little phrase, hold us by our right hand. Because I remember a friend of mine who was a missionary of Jewish background, Russian speaker, uh, went out uh, to work in, um, uh, in Indonesia. And uh, as part of his training, he was in Singapore. And he had a little daughter at the time who went to a school at the top of a hill. So he walked at the school in the morning, as good parents do. He tried to inculcate some independence in the little girl. So he stopped at the bottom of the hill and he said, now darling, the school is up there, you can see it. Do you think you can walk up to the school up the hill about 100 meters without daddy with you? And she said, of course I can daddy. Because God tells me that he'll hold me by the right hand so Jesus will take me by the right hand. And off she walked with her hand up in the air as if God was holding her right hand. Because she had taken this promise, literally, that God will hold us by the right hand. 
and that he would providentially care for us. Again, as Isaiah said, the bruised reed he will not break, the smoking flax he will not quench. Some believers, perhaps even this morning here, are like bruised reeds. Now, you're, a city, you're city people. I, my wife is a country person. So uh, we've been in Pembrokeshire, West Wales, this last week, looking at the lily ponds. And sometimes in these lily ponds, you see these reeds come up. And when they bruise, the top just flops down to the side. The natural inclination is to go up, just cut it off. It's finished. God says some believers like that. They're like bruised reeds. But I'm not going to cut them off. The bruised reed I will not break. And some believers are like smoking flax. You know, a candle. We'll be using a lot of these this winter, I suspect. You have a candle and the light goes out. You just have the plume of smoke. And you think, oh, it's finished. God says some believers are like that. Like smoking flax. I will not put them out. In other words, God's promise is to providentially care for us as a loving father does. Perhaps the most powerful illustration I've, I've experienced of this is in the life of the greatest intellectual I've ever met, who's a lawyer, Professor Sir Norman Anderson, was professor of uh, Oriental and Islamic law in Cambridge University. He wrote a brilliant booklet called Evidence for the Resurrection. If you're doubting the evidence for the resurrection, get his book. Uh, his arguments are... are um, are captivating and um, I remember hearing him speak when I was a student brilliant and I saw him in debate in the law courts typical of many great lawyers uh, as he was articulating his case he just sliced through the opposition like that just took it apart very cool very cold 25 years ago just before he died we were both speaking at a big student event in Britain there were about 2,000 students there I was doing a Bible exposition but it was one of those evenings you never forget. He was not because of my exposition, but because of his testimony. He was interviewed at 85 years of age by a young vicar who said to him, Professor Anderson, uh, you are a famous lawyer. You're now 85 years of age. You've been a follower of Jesus Christ for 70 years. But you had three children and they're all dead. They all died in their 20s. Two of hereditary diseases. One of them was a brilliant Oxford student. Many people thought he'd become prime minister. And you had a daughter who committed suicide. You have no children to leave your resources to. Do you ever ask the question, why me? I thought he was going too far in public in front of all these students. Quick as a flash, he came back and he said, actually, I never asked the question, why me? I asked the question, why not me? For in a fallen world, we are not promised in Scripture that Christians will not experience cancer. Or that if a plane goes down, there will not be believers on it as well as unbelievers. Or that we will not face difficulties. What we are promised is the hope of heaven beyond. So he said, I grieve the loss of my children. And the interview went on to say, your wife's got dementia. She doesn't recognize you anymore. What do you say to that? And he said, what I do is, the difference between myself and the unbelievers, I draw on the grace of God. Then he gave the best definition I've ever heard of this. He said, the grace of God comes to me in three ways. So remember this if you're in difficulty. The promises of Scripture. I live by, by God's promises. Holding on to His promises rather than law. Secondly, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Who indwells me as a believer. And, and brings to my attention promises in Scripture. That's why we should learn them. And thirdly, the companionship of God's people. And he said, when the unbeliever is faced by the same kind of tragedies I've experienced, 
Where does he or she look? Where is their hope? What can they look for if there is no grace that they depend on? Then he went on to say the grace of God doesn't eradicate pain in this life, but it reduces its potency until we are reunited in him. And that's the biblical picture in terms of dealing with grief. It's not wrong to grieve. I lost my only daughter 35 years ago, next month. I still experience most days some pain as I think of her loss, what she would be like now as a young mother, potentially. The scar is still there, just like this rugby scar. But the, the depth of pain is diminished because of the grace of God given through the promises of Scripture, the hope of reunification in heaven. Secondly, the, the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, the company of God's people. Now many people say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. It's so, <laughs> uh, it's so offbeat. But actually, when it works, there's nothing like it. When you experience grief and loss and other believers gather and gather around, it's just wonderful. I remember when our daughter died, I lost count with a number of older believers who knocked on our door. They didn't have hard answers. They just said, we've come to grieve with you. We had the same experience 25 years ago. And that's why we joined a church where nearly everybody was older than us. As I said to my wife, we need to be the church where there are people who are mature, who have experienced the ups and downs of life rather than just in the church with lots of young people, which is what we were in in Paris before. We need to return to our roots, and we need to surround ourselves with godly older believers who have trusted God through the ups and downs of life. That's the plus of the church at its best. So the grace of God is ministered to us in these ways, the providential care of God as he takes hold of us, and he comforts us and guides us and gives us his counsel, which is paramount in Scripture, you know, one of the most beautiful phrases about Scripture, within Scripture itself, is this. That Scripture is the voice of God. That's why every time you, you read Scripture, you should be hearing the voice of God speaking to us, as it were. As, as it were, Benny Graham talked about in this, God's love letter. What does God have to say in this situation? If we stop reading Scripture, we won't hear the voice of God. That's why we need to maintain these disciplines, even in the midst of adversity. So that's the third thing. Well, my time is nearly up. So let me give you the fourth one. The fourth thing that Asaph comes to realize is that God is a just God who executes justice with equity. He will judge the ungodly. Secondly, he cares for his children. Uh, uh, he, he's present with his children. Present with his children. Thirdly, he providentially cares for us as a father, holds us by the right hand. Fourthly, he offers us hope. In verse 24, it's one of the very few phrases in the Old Testament which refers to heaven. Actually, there's much more in the New Testament about heaven in, this, in the teaching of Jesus and Paul. The word heaven is not mentioned that frequently in the Old Testament. Sometimes the word glory is used instead, as it is here. Um, often elsewhere, a, word, a Hebrew word is used just to describe the place of the departed. But clearly, Asaph here is talking about the heaven of heavens where God dwells. For he says in verse 24, afterwards you will take me to glory. At the beginning of the, this uh, exposition, I quoted several people who are not believers. Let me give you a few more quotations of unbelievers in terms of their view about death, 
and compare them with believers. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher who denied the existence of God, said, when I die, it's a step into the unknown. He was crying for mercy on his deathbed. Uh, contemporary accounts uh, say, by the way. Bertrand Russell was a lapsed Catholic, uh, sorry, uh, Somerset Maughan, a lapsed Catholic uh, writer, said death would be a hellish experience uh, for me. And Bertrand Russell, the great English philosopher, said, when I die, I have no hope. Uh, there's nothing after. So you can sense some of the pathos and despair in those quotations. Compare that, however, with the words of Coretta Scott King, the wife and the widow of Martin Luther King, who was shot dead by one bullet from the hands of an assassin at 37 years of age, the great black civil rights leader. When he died, this is what his wife said, they ended my husband's earthly existence with one bullet, but not all the bullets in all the arsenals in all the world can end his eternal existence, for my husband is with God. What a statement. Or John Penry, who was executed in 1596 in Wales for coming to a meeting like this uh, in a little fellowship. He was hung by the neck for coming to a Puritan gathering. And the night before he was executed, he saw his wife for the last time. And this is what he said to her as his closing words. Imagine saying this to your wife, the last time you see her. Dear one, you, I have been your husband for a season, but I will be your brother for eternity. That's not to make light of the reality of death. Or may I say of our daughter's gravestone, we took the phrase from 2 Samuel 11 where David had lost a son. He prayed for the son to be healed. God saw fit to take him. And instead of fasting, carrying on, David washed up, stopped wearing sackcloth and ashes. And somebody said, why aren't you still in sackcloth and ashes? And he said, well, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. So on our daughter's gravestone, we wrote the words, she cannot come to us, but because of the covenant love of God, we will go to her. The hope of heaven, which he touches on here, which of course we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. Or I think of the blind man I came across in India, blind from birth, who said, I thank God, the first person I will ever see is Jesus Christ. Now, if you're an unbeliever, if you've been coming along to this church for quite a while, you've not made that transition to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Allow me to ask as gently as I can, but as directly as I can, where is your hope? Who are you going to turn to in the midst of difficulty? And if you're a believer this morning, my encouragement to you is not to wallow in your difficulty, to thrash around like Asaph. You might be midway through the psalm, where you're still somewhat embittered, somewhat perplexed, wondering what on earth is God doing? God is both compassionate, but as he understood at the beginning of the psalm, he's good. You know, I've been taught before my daughter's death that God was sovereign, God was gracious, and God was good. I understood the doctrines intellectually. When we lost a child, we kicked in. And the Holy Spirit brought those truths to my memory. That's why it's important to understand biblical doctrine or teaching about the character of God. This teaching is given to refresh and help us. That's why in Deuteronomy 32, in the so-called Song of Moses, God says, my doctrine, referring to these great truths, will refresh you like the dew in the morning. That's the purpose of teaching the great truths of Scripture. So, dear brothers and sisters, 
How do we get out of this interminably difficult situation if we are facing adversity, if we've lost a loved one, if our home was burned down as happened to my parents-in-law some years ago when a workman sparked a fire in the roof, they were left with nothing and desolate. How do you come through these things? You trust that God is just, that God is present with his children. He will never forsake them. God will care for his children by his grace and through the companionship of the church and the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, even if these difficulties stick with us, and some will until the end of our days, if some people have a particular disability or handicap, the hope of God is available as we look to him and continue to trust him in times of difficulty. And that's why at the end, his conclusion is, as he sorted out the question to his satisfaction, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy those who are unfaithful. But, as for me, it's good to be near God. And I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. You have to stop there. He says, I'll tell the world of his deeds. That's our calling. <coughs> Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that scripture doesn't evade the big questions of life. We thank you that you take them head on. Sometimes we're fearful there might not be answers, so we hide away. But as we search the scriptures, we see that you provide substantial, satisfying, and the best answers to the issues that really we, are, we struggle with. So we pray this morning that if there are any here who are struggling with adversity in life, with pain or loss or difficulty in some way, worried about the the cost of living crisis or what's going to happen in Ukraine and whether there'll be nuclear warfare or whatever or whether we'll catch COVID. These are real challenges we face and we do not want to diminish them. But we look to you, the God of all grace, it's not found anywhere else, to comfort us with the truths of Scripture, to come alongside us in the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit and to encourage us with your promises and the support of your people. Help us to trust in you, the God of all grace, the God who is omnipresent, the God who holds us by the right hand, the God who will take us to glory. Help us to look to you and trust you, whatever the difficulties and challenges we face. But we ask it in Jesus' name with thanksgiving and praise. Amen.